Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verse 18. We'll look this morning at verses 18 down through verse 30 as we continue our study through this gospel. Somewhere along the way, it dawns on all of us that we're going to die. Don't think about that much when you're young, but then suddenly you realize, wow, that's me too. And when that happens, we all experience some longing for immortality. There must be something more. We want desperately something more. And that desire for for longevity drives some of us to become fitness fanatics, trying to push back the onslaught of aging. The same desire fuels medical science's research into extending life expectancy. For others, that longing for immortality manifests itself in an ambition to leave a great legacy, some mark on the world for generations to come. And for multitudes, the quest for immortality uh, fuels religious fervor as we seek uh, life beyond the grave. In one way or another, We all long to know eternal life. Our text today is about one young man who came in contact with Jesus with that concern. Let me read it. Luke 18, begin with verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept from, uh, kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him, heard this, asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, well, we've left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. I think this text confronts us with three truths. So three points this morning. The first is this. You can have it all and miss eternal life. You can have it all and miss eternal life. Some time ago, I read an article in USA Today, which I don't even have the date anymore. I just have the information. It was an article about the religious habits of uh, people in the Pacific Northwest. According to this article, Washington has the distinction of leading all the states in the country in the percentage of its residents who have no religion at all, who call themselves atheists, agnostic or secular. 
And yet, the article goes on to say, people in our state lead pretty attractive lives in lots of ways. Many are very community-minded. Many volunteer time and money to help people needs, to meet people needs. Uh, maintain active, healthy families who are out enjoying God's great creation more than most people. But even this secular article labels all of that, quote, pretty thin gruel for soul food. Especially when, quote, your mother dies or your child has cancer or September 11th happens. And there you are, wandering around saying, whatever. In other words, you can have it all and still lack any hope of eternal life. Behind our carefully constructed facade stands this disturbing reality that someday it's all going to come to nothing. Under our confident of life image lurks the fear of dying. In our hearts burns desire for real life, for life that will not end. Well, that's the picture of the man in the text. He seems to have it all together. This account is carried in the three of the four Gospels, and so if we uh, pull all the information together that we have from the other Gospels, we get a pretty complete portrait of this man. Let me just tell you what we know about him from all three of the Gospels. First of all, we know that he is uh, rich. We read this in, at the end of verse 23. He was a man of great wealth. Even in our society, no matter what deficiencies you might have, they all become rather insignificant if you're rich, don't they? You know the old saying, money isn't everything, but it's way ahead of whatever's in second place. Money certainly can open many doors. But this wasn't just some rich, old, eccentric. Secondly, we learn he's young. Matthew points this out, calling him young man. And today we certainly believe that being young is important. Never has youth been so idolized as it is in our culture. The young are trying to get rich, but the rich are trying to recapture their youth. <laughs> oh, but this guy had it all. He was both rich and young. And that's not all. He was also prominent. In verse 18, we learn right up front, he is a ruler. William Hendrickson suggests that he is probably one of the officials in charge of a local synagogue, a man of high reputation. This man has influence, he has clout, he has power. He is rich and young and prominent, and he's eager. According to the account in Mark 10, he ran up to Jesus. He had a problem, a question, so he eagerly pursued it looking for an answer. This is the kind of man we want to hire. He's a go-getter. He's a self-starter. He seizes the initiative to make things happen. He has it all. But he's also respectful. We know rich young kids who are spoiled brats. Certain rich athletes come to mind. But in verse 18, he spoke respectfully to Jesus, calling him good teacher. In fact, according to Mark 10, the man not only called him good teacher, but he politely knelt before Jesus. 
You see, he was not like the scribes who came to maliciously attack Jesus. This man comes to Jesus with the proper protocol uh, uh, fitting for a rabbi. And then to top it all off, he was not only rich and young and prominent and eager and respectful, he was morally upright. He was not some heathen. He was a very devout man. In verse 21, he claimed to have kept God's law. He kept the commandments forbidding murder and adultery and theft and perjury. He honored his parents. He loved his neighbors. And Jesus never challenged those claims. Jesus never said to him, who do you think you're kidding? I know you didn't do all that. He doesn't say that. This guy is just too good to be true. He had it all. If you or I met this man, we would be so impressed, for he's done all the right things. He was, a re- he was religious in a way that made him a good citizen. He was respected. He showed respect for others. Surely this is the kind of man we need in our church, right? But wait a minute. This man does not have eternal life. That's not me being judgmental. In fact, Jesus didn't even tell him that. That was the testimony of his own lips. Teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Behind all his attainments, he was troubled by his lack of true life. For all his religious devotion, he still feared dying. Like so many others, the emptiness of his soul had probably driven him to his great achievements. Oh, we're so easily caught up in this mentality that if we could have it all, we would be satisfied. But this young man realized that his beautiful life, so admired by his peers, ultimately would come to nothing. He was disturbed enough to publicly come to Jesus, seeking an answer. He was willing to do still more. What must I do, if necessary, to guarantee his eternal peace? Is this you? Can you identify with this man? You've gained some success. Others are often impressed. You have a good life. You're morally upright, generous to those in need, respectful to those in authority, concerned to make the community a better place, Perhaps you're still young, you have your whole life to enjoy, but underneath what everyone sees as Mr. or Ms. success, your heart cries out for some assurance that things are okay with God, that you really have eternal life. You know that underneath what everyone else thinks is a great life, there lives a person filled with uncertainty, burdened by guilt, and overcome by the fear of death. We know it's true, don't we? You can have it all and not have eternal life. If that's your situation, you need to listen to the Lord Jesus this morning. For He's speaking not just to this man, he's speaking to people like us as he tells this man what he needs to do to attain the life he seeks. Which brings us to our second point. The way of eternal life is radical faith. The way of eternal life is radical faith. 
Radical is one of those words which has been so overused it's pretty much lost its meaning. We do that, you know, we take powerful words and then use them for every mediocre kind of thing until after a while they mean nothing. Think, for example, of the word awesome <laughs> or, or, or fantastic or wonderful or radical. They don't mean much anymore. Uh, what I have in mind is a, is a more powerful 60s kind of radical. Radical as in go to any length and rock any boat and challenge any status quo, pay any price for what you believe to be true. That's radical. And the way of eternal life is radical faith. Everyone seems to have some faith, so what's so radical about the faith Jesus calls us to? Well, Jesus tells us two things, I think. We kind of boil down what all he says here. The first of this is radical faith means no other gods. No other gods. Jesus starts his answer by reaffirming that God's law is the only valid standard of righteousness. It is what God requires for eternal life. Verse 19, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Or, or as Matthew's account puts it even more pointedly, there is only one who is good, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. This is significant for us, for it's now quite popular to just throw out God's commandments, to throw out anything in God's word that, uh, that infringes on our, our sense of freedom or what we want. Just to consider it all outdated and not applicable to us anymore. But I must tell you that any hope of eternal life, which assumes that God just loves everyone and has thrown out all the rules is self-deceived. Jesus takes this man right back to the Ten Commandments and says in effect, this is the righteousness which God demands if you would have eternal life. Well, the man claims to have kept those commands. Since I was a boy, I've done all of that. He says, I'm not a liar, I'm not a thief, an adulterer, a murderer. I take care of my parents, love my neighbors, which is more than most of us could say. But Jesus is not done with him yet. In verse 22, Jesus heard this and said to him, you still lack one thing. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now, what's going on here? Well, this man may have kept the second half of the Ten Commandments, those humanitarian concerns about how we treat people and those uh, kind of ethical standards. But what about the more important first half, the part about having no other gods before the Lord? By his demand that the man sell all that he has and give away the proceeds, Jesus reveals the man's true heart. Despite all his claims to the contrary, despite his leadership position in the synagogue, despite his rigorous law-keeping in respect to others, this man's heart really belongs to another, a different God, namely his own wealth. As Fred Craddock describes it, he has lain too long in silken ease, fared too well at banquet tables, rested too comfortably on the security of his surplus, 
moved too far from the cries of the hungry, enjoyed too obviously the envy of those less prosperous, assumed too much that he could buy everything he needed. He depends on his money. In short, he is an idolater. His uh, encounter with Jesus adds sadly because upon the realization that he cannot serve God and mammon, he has chosen mammon, money. There's most likely never a time or a place where he said, I choose money, not God. Experience and observation teach us that this is a condition to which people awaken after years of creeping materialism. Earlier he might have extracted himself, but now he's very rich. You see, Jesus never changed the standard of righteousness which God demands. He just pointed out this man doesn't really have it. He hadn't even kept the first commandment. You'll have no other gods before me. For once God is that with which he will not part. No matter what the cost, he will not part with it. That's why Jesus said it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. They have to part with their other God. Even the disciples caught up in the culture as, as, as we're caught up in our culture were shocked. They said, well, who can be saved then? If the guy who's got it all can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus said, in effect, no one. Unless God does the impossible. Radical faith means no other gods. What about you? What God do you really serve? What is it with which you would never be willing to part? What is it that has ultimate priority in your life? What is it that has immediate priority that demands your attention now above everything else? You see, we may claim that the Lord is our God, but if we hold something to be more precious to us than he is, he is not our God. That more precious thing is our God. We may say that the Lord has ultimate priority, but if in practice we always give priority to something else first, that's our real God, not him. Radical faith, the way of life, means no other gods. That's the negative truth here. That's the point of repentance, getting rid of every other god. But there's also a positive side to radical faith. And that is that radical faith means following Jesus. Go sell everything you have and come follow me, Jesus says. Unfortunately, this young ruler never got beyond the bad news because of his love for his wealth and his unwillingness to surrender it to God. But Jesus' call was not just to abandon everything, but to come and follow him. 
For Jesus knew that no one could attain eternal life by keeping all the commandments perfectly. We're sinful. We're just not going to do that. We cannot do that. Jesus also knows that God doesn't change his standards. Perfect righteousness is still the prerequisite for eternal life. Oh, but here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus knew why he had come into the world. He had come to do for this man and for us what we could not do for ourselves to gain for us eternal life. So let me explain again how Jesus does this. First, Jesus actually lived that perfectly righteous life which God requires. He kept the commandments perfectly like no one before or since. And then he willingly went to the cross where he laid down his life as a perfect payment, an atoning sacrifice for our sinful lives. There on the cross, God unleashed his holy justice against our sin, but he punished Jesus, his son, not us. Jesus substituted himself for us. Then God demonstrated that Jesus' death was payment enough by raising him from the dead. And now for those who are following Jesus, for those who rest their case in Jesus alone, God takes away our sinful status as condemned lawbreakers. He can do that because Jesus paid for our sin. And he substitutes to us Christ's perfect record of righteousness, puts it to our account without any payment on our part. It's a, it's a gift. And gives us eternal life with Jesus since our sin is paid for and we wear his righteousness. There's no obstacle to God extending us that grace. The way of eternal life is radical faith. Following Jesus no matter what the cost because he alone gives eternal life. And folks, this morning, Jesus' word to us is exactly the same. He says, trust me. And I'll tell you what that means. Go forsake everything else that stands in the way, everything else that competes, and come follow me. Be my disciple. Jesus does not say, if, if you're too lazy to even think about this, if you're too lazy to, to, to try to find eternal life, then just come to me because I've got free passes. That's not really what he's saying. He's saying, if you've come to the end of yourself, if you've realized you will never be good enough to be acceptable before God, if you are ready to admit that you're as helpless as a little baby before God, if you are desperate enough to forsake everything else that you're serving in order to follow me, then get rid of them, turn your back on them, and come to me and I will give you as a free gift the eternal life that you could never win on your own. And I will enable you to live out that righteousness then. No matter how many times you've heard that before, or if this is the very first time that it's ever dawned on you what the gospel's about, this morning I call you to follow Christ. Does he still require you to sell all you have and give it to the poor? Yes. Or anything else that might stand between you and, and giving absolute allegiance to him. And if that's where you are, get rid of it, whatever it is. Whatever God you're serving must be completely abandoned. 
Remember? Radical faith. Jesus wants your unswerving loyalty, your total confidence. He wants you to follow him whatever the cost, and he will give you eternal life. He will not share your devotion, your allegiance with someone or something else. Not with your family or your business or your success, not with your pleasures or your plans or your education. Jesus is in a league of his own. He has no peers. He is God and must be our only God. That's radical faith. And before we close, there's one more brief thing to consider, one more point. And that is, you cannot outgive the Lord. You cannot outgive the Lord. At the end of this chapter, Jesus has a somewhat uh, humorous, certainly very human uh, exchange with his disciples. Just a moment earlier, everyone was uh, uh, realizing salvation is impossible. Who can be saved? If it means giving up everything. And then suddenly in verse 28, Peter is claiming, well, that's exactly what we've done. We have left all we had to follow you. Here we, here we see the pervasive perversity of the human heart. Even when we realize the impossible standard of God's perfect righteousness, which brings us to an end of ourselves and calls us to call out to him for mercy, and when by his grace he gives us the faith to repent and follow him, no matter what the cost, almost immediately there arises within us a sense of self-justification that turns our faith and our obedience into some meritorious work that expects that God now owes us. He ought to reward us for our faithfulness. But folks, you can't outgive God. Jesus could well have railed on his disciples for this type for this lapse into self-righteousness, reminding them that their only hope was his mercy. But instead Jesus explains that his grace was greater than any sacrifice they had ever made. Specifically, he answered their claim of leaving all to follow him with the promise that those who leave home and loved ones for the sake of the kingdom have only stepped into a realm of even greater grace and blessing. For they will receive already in this age many times as much as they've given up in addition to the eternal life which he already promised. Because you can't outgive the Lord. You know, in a community like ours, where many enjoy deep roots and wide extended family relations. People sometimes get into a subtle kind of thinking that thinks that to leave those God-given, God-ordained family ties, even to go serve the Lord, would be somehow unfaithful to God's covenant that includes our family. And even among those who do understand that God does sometimes call people to leave family and home, there's often a deep sense of loss, a, 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 
even pity for those that God calls to do that. That's the attitude Peter was reflecting. Man, we've paid a big price, Lord. Wow, we had to leave everything. Folks, God's family is bigger and better than your family. Being uprooted from your family does not mean becoming rootless and, and, and wilted. It only is an occasion to be replanted in a bigger garden. Or as Jesus explains, it means having many more brothers and sisters and many more fathers and mothers. I know something about this. Jane and I have walked this road with our lives, as have our parents. Both of our sets of parents were uprooted from their family to go and serve the Lord. And now here we are. We've been uprooted yet again for the sake of our ministry. Though we love our families every bit as much as you love yours. But this morning I tell you, you need not feel sorry for us. For God has given us many friends closer than any brothers or sisters. Parents who cared for us when our own parents were unable to do so. Many sets of grandparents for our children who blessed our children in profound ways. We are not poorer in any sense than those who stayed close to home. I was reminded of this Thursday as I received dozens of birthday greetings, especially a ton of them on Facebook. Several of those young people that wished me a happy birthday on Facebook addressed it to Uncle Bert. You may have noticed that. The interesting thing is, not one of those kids is actually my niece or nephew. I don't have any nieces or nephews as close to me as those young people. They're some of the sweet extended family of God that the Lord has given us. God has given us much, much more than we ever left behind. Because you cannot outgive the Lord. So don't you be afraid to follow Jesus thinking the cost is too high. His grace has unlimited ways to compensate for what you thought would be a loss. In 2 Corinthians 4 we read, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's what Jesus would have us to learn from his encounter with the rich young ruler. That man, though he sought eternal life, had his eyes so fixed on what was seen that he missed eternal life, which was unseen. From his experience, we need to learn. You can have it all and still miss eternal life. The way of eternal life is radical faith. No other gods following Jesus. But even as you abandon everything to follow Christ, you cannot 
outgive the Lord. His grace is just greater than that. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that we need to hear again and again because even like the disciples, we almost immediately slip into a a perverse kind of self-righteousness that even turns our faith into some merit and thinks that we can demand something from you or that you owe us something. Thank you that when we're desperate that you have reached out to us in mercy to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and may we never hold anything to be more important than you. May we quickly abandon anything that would set itself up in your place and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.